Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, tonight, I get the joy of introducing our special speaker for tonight, Erin Herman. Um, It is my joy to introduce her, not just because she's speaking, um, but because this will actually be Erin's last time speaking as a staff member at Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. And Erin came to me in the fall, and... uh, I was like, oh no, here it comes. <laughs> and she told me that she sensed that this was her last year on staff. And she had already served longer than she'd committed. And uh, she'd sensed that the Lord was um, moving her into a new season. And she had been on staff or has been on staff for seven years. And so that is a significant time of of her life that she's been serving with us. And it's the number of fullness. And so it seems right, right? Um, it's hard to overstate what Aaron has meant to me personally and to this fellowship as a whole. Aaron is a uniquely gifted person. It has been a joy to work with her day in and day out for the last seven years. Aaron has a mix of a strategic mind, of strong interpersonal skills, and Uh, a sincere pastoral heart. I mean, Olivia, who just shared, is just one of the many people that um, Aaron has walked by um, and with for years. There have been many times where we have done things as a fellowship where the ideas originated in Aaron's mind. There have been many times when I, as the director of Chi Alpha, have been overwhelmed, and Aaron has noticed it. I, I thought of one time when we were raising money to procure the property at the hub. And, and frankly, I was a little overwhelmed by everything that was going on. And I'll never forget Aaron coming in and saying, Pete, how can I help you? And starting to run with certain things to bring order in the midst of the chaos so the dream could be fulfilled. And that's just a word picture of what Aaron has done for the last seven years. She's led parts of our team internally um, that have had huge impacts externally in our fellowship. She has, the last two years, led our internship program. And I can tell you, in her two years of leading the internship program, she's done nothing but make it better and a better training um, than it's ever been. And so, all of this to say, I could go on and on and on what Aaron has meant to this ministry. She has blessed me personally our team, and our entire fellowship. And she leaves a deep mark in this fellowship and big shoes to fill. And so um, what I would like to do is we actually have a a gift for Erin that we're going to present to her. And it is a, a, a picture that she can hang up on her wall to remember the season. Here, yeah, come on up, Aaron, <laughs> to remember her season on staff. And so will you guys join me at the watch parties here in person and, and honor Aaron for her seven years of service with Chi Alpha? Aaron. We love you. 
and this fellowship is better because of the years that you have served, and I'm grateful for your seven years here, and um, look forward to seeing what the Lord has for you in the next season, but know that you're loved and will be missed as you uh, head into your next season. So, thank you. And now, could somebody bring Aaron her Bible and her notes as I turn it over? And you want me to take that back down and... All right, and this is just one small commemoration of, I don't know how to commemorate seven years of your life, but when you put this up on the wall, um, just a, a for your, with, of your time with us, so. Well, all right. I told Pete if he started saying things too nice, I would cry, and he did. Um, I want to say thank you so much um, to every coworker that I've had, to Pete, my boss, um, to every student who I've gotten to sit down with. It's been my joy. Um, I arrived at UVA in 2010, so it's been almost 11 years. Um, and within a couple of weeks of school, I actually met my husband, who's sitting in the back. So thank you very much, Kellogg Dorm. Um, but at the time, I was nothing like I am now, and I owe such a debt of gratitude to this fellowship um, for the ways that um, you have shaped me um, and the ways that I will live life from here on out. Um, we're going to be continuing through the book of Ephesians in the series called Different. And as we study together the second half of Paul's letters, he shares with us how life in Christ makes us look different our identities, how we define maturity, how we interpret our actions. We're going to be picking up right where Pete left off last week in Ephesians chapter 5. And if you remember from last week, Pete shared with us how we live differently because we are filled by the Spirit, how this impacts our speech, the opportunity we have to forgive, even our sexuality. And so tonight, as we continue, we're going to look at how does the gospel transform our relationships? Um, And some of you guys have been waiting for this very passage. You've thought, hmm, Ephesians 5. Uh, It's that passage. Yes, Ephesians 5, that passage. We're going to be looking at what is commonly referred to as Paul's longest instruction on marriage. And a lot of ink has been spilled on this passage trying to get at what are the issues surrounding gender, what roles are there. But as I've seen that, I think what's unfortunate about that conversation sometimes is how many people are pointing fingers on who's right, who's wrong, and we miss the central point. What makes this good news? Why would Paul include this in his letter to the Ephesian church, whom he loved, who he was very much for, and who he believed that Christ would change their life? So I told you, I'm married to a guy named Zach. He's in the balcony, and we met um, in Kellogg, just as I said, Uh, It was kind of like a will they, won't they, like I had a crush on him for like two years. Did he know? Did he not know? I think he knows. He says he did not know. I don't know. Only the Lord knows. But after about five years, Zach came back to Charlottesville. It was after we had graduated, came back to Charlottesville for grad school, and we started hanging out in a group, and then we started hanging out in smaller groups, and then one night... We had made this plan to go on a sunset hike to Humpback, and we're like, yeah, like if you invite people, or if you invite people, but neither one of us invited anybody. Was it a date? I don't know. It was a date, guys. It was a date. So we were at Humpback Rocks, July, 
And Zach is more athletic than me. Um, it's, that is really safe to say. And so we're about halfway up, and I just, I can't do it. Humpback is not easy. Why do we pretend that humpback is easy? It's not easy. And so he's like bounding up the, the mountain, um, and I am like, I'm going to be sick. So sick. And right there, I make the decision. I tell him, I'm going to be sick. I walk this way. He walks that way. And I yak right in the middle of the woods. <laughs> so gross. Thank you, Michelle. So gross. But um, so he like sheepishly comes back. And he's like, are you okay? He asked the next logical question, which is, are we going to go back down or are we going to keep going? And if you know me, this doesn't surprise you. But I was like, let's go. <laughs> How was I going to like show any weakness in that moment? Head back down the hill. This was humpback. I was going to do it. Let's go. But ladies, if you can find yourself a guy that doesn't mind if you vomit in the bushes on your first date, you'll keep him, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Find yourself someone with character, and he has that too. Um, but in all seriousness, in college, I just remember thinking about this Ephesians 5 passage and what it says about marriage, what it says about people, what it says about myself as a female. I remember sitting around kitchen counters and having discussions with people who were wrestling with this, grappling with it. What did it mean? Would it be okay to take this seriously or would it not be? I had friends that would have rather just cut this out of the whole thing and ignored it rather than actually look at it and take a look for what it meant for their lives. And there's a lot of damage that has been done in this as people have used this passage against one another. But as I have looked at this passage, as I have seen it as hopeful gospel news, that's what I would want for you guys tonight. To have that same aha moment where you say, yes, that does make sense with the character of Jesus who I know. Um, So that's my goal, that tonight you would walk away with this, that in Christ and by his spirit, our relationships are different. And we can see that in the pages of Ephesians 5. So we're going to read together. Chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Yeah, some of your pages start with verse 22, some with verse 21. I'll be starting in verse 21, and we'll kind of explain that a little bit later. But starting in verse 21, our scriptures read, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the, Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Then he turns to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, so there it is. Where do we begin? 
Um, I want to start by answering a few questions that I hope puts this in context. So the first question is this, who is Paul talking to? What I love about scripture is that as we narrow the focus of our passage tonight, as we look at this church in Ephesus, what I'm amazed at is that God's word actually intersects human history, that we're actually talking about a real place with a real culture, with real people that Paul is talking to. And so when we can do that unpacking of what is this moment in human history, we can learn a little bit more about God's character. Scholars say that it's hard for us to even have um, a framework in modern Western context to even grasp the differences between what we live in right here, right now, and the situation that Paul is speaking of. It's that big of a difference. But I hope we can unpack that a little bit. So if you look at the Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6 chapters, you'll actually see three pairs of relationships. First, and the one that we're focusing on tonight, is wives and husbands. But later comes children and parents, and then lastly, slaves and masters. What's interesting to us is that the second person addressed in each of these pairs is actually the same person. You'll notice that the husband is the father, is the master. That would have been the setting that we're talking about. So imagine this household where that person is the same. And we actually see that this is the Roman household of nobility, that person actually has this kind of household where they have absolute power, where they're sitting as the leader in that household. And by absolute power, I mean that that guy could exercise absolutely whatever he wished, and other people would have no check on his power. They had no legal standing or recourse. There was no department where they could put a complaint for their boss. This was his, his spot. This was where he could exercise absolute power. So what we're talking about is that Paul's looking at this household church meeting in what we would see as a Roman villa. Paul is trying to teach this small little unit of Christian believers how the the gospel will, will transform relationships with one another. And as we think about the word household, we're not talking about a nuclear family with a couple of parents and a couple of kids, and we're not talking even about just an extended family, a multi-generational household. What we're actually talking about in the Roman first century is this intersection between private and public life, that there were shops on the first floor, that this was a family that was also a business and a business that was also a family. Everything happened under that one roof. And in this world, that household or how those relationships would even form is through something called patronage. There'd be the patron, the one in charge, the one with the power, the one with the, the resources, the one with the title, and those poor and powerless that were needed that person's care, needed that person's provision, needed that person's leadership. They were entirely dependent on the householder for their provision, for their livelihood, for a roof over their head, for food on their table. This isn't a setting that actually assumes equal standing as citizens. It assumes the very opposite. So scholars say this is difficult for us to have a frame of reference for. My closest frame of reference, and I'm hoping this hits, if it lands, it lands, if it doesn't, it doesn't. But my closest reference point is Downton Abbey. Let's see it, do we have a photo? And we don't. 
So Downton Abbey, there's the Earl of Grantham. He has absolute power. Basically, in English, 19th century, there are tenant farmers, there are servants in the household, and then there's this one guy that's in charge. And the whole drama that unfolds is actually an heir thing where he has three daughters. Who's going to take, who's going to have power in this household? And all that they play with is this dynamic of this person who has all this power, and what will he do with it? So for instance, there's the cook downstairs who um, is having trouble with her vision and finds out that she's dealing with blindness. Now the guy upstairs, the Earl, has absolute power to fire her on the spot because she can't read the recipes, she can't pick the ingredients, and she can't actually serve um, the family upstairs. He has the absolute power to fire her on the spot. She wouldn't be able to find a job. She doesn't have money. Um, She doesn't have a house to live in. But instead, he chooses to send her to London to visit the eye doctor. And it's this kind of magical moment because he actually does the right thing, notices her, and uses his power well. But enough of 20th century England. If it didn't land, it didn't land. Olivia Pincombe looks like, meh. What is marriage? What is marriage at this time? Because I think that's also really important to understand. History would show that this householder, his, his average age of getting married would be about 30. Meanwhile, his wife would be under 18. She would be invited into this home as his wife, totally under his rules. He would, have, he would be able to share with her how things are done in this space according to what he and his family had done. We know that it was, it was true that most of these elite men were promiscuous, that they had mistresses and they also had concubines. That was pretty common. And so the reason for a wife was legitimacy and an heir. She was to bear his children, and actually it was, it was a reason for divorce if she could not bear an heir. She had a function within the household. So if you're thinking romance and you're thinking partnership, that's just not even closely understanding that they had because the wife was brought in for a very specific role. So the point is that this audience never assumed partnership. It wasn't even a concept. And this is the assumption. This is the backdrop, the situation into which Paul writes. So with all that in mind, what was his purpose What is he calling them to do, and why did he even care to share this with them? Why did he put a pen to paper on this topic? You might begin to see what Paul is doing here. He's taking this household of Rome, a structure that they were really familiar with, and out of these households of Rome, these households of culture, he's building the church. Paul is saying, this is a new household. There are entirely different house rules. This is the new house of God. Because when a householder would come to know Jesus, his whole household would be expected to follow his God as well. And so out of these households were the beginning of the church that we see in the New Testament. Paul takes the most fundamental relational building blocks that society had at the time, and he said, we're going to start here. We're going to start with the person right next to you and see what the gospel does there. And though the context is really, really different, I want to say that those relational building blocks are actually really common around us right now. We all enter the world as children. A lot of us will have employers, employees. Many of us will be married, might be parents. 
But what are the fundamental building blocks of community now, this new household of God, and how does what Paul says relate to us today? What are the main differences in this new household? We'll look at three key differences that Paul shares with us. And I said that the section might have started in verse 21 or 22. The headings in Scripture are helpful frameworks to know what we're talking about, what sections we're talking about, but... Sometimes we miss the point here because the sentence actually in the Greek starts in verse 18. It's the exact same sentence that Pete talked about last week. It says, instead be filled with the Spirit. The first thing that makes the household of God different is that it's Spirit-filled. Paul says that every relationship when it is Spirit-filled will fundamentally be different. You cannot have a relationship look the same before and after the Spirit. Fundamentally, they're going to be different. They're going to be entirely different. And this sentiment fills his writing, right? Because Paul says, be clothed with Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live a life worthy of your calling. We, all believers, are defined by the Spirit of God. And so this is the assumption of Paul's writing, that in marriage, in parenthood, in all business relationships, that this continual filling of the presence of God that would fill us up with God's nature, fill us up with his character, that we would bear his resemblance, that this empowering presence would allow us to live differently. This is what he says the foundation is. And so with that in mind, we turn to verse 21. What would this look like in the household? What is his thesis statement? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Can you imagine, in a setting like I just described, how jaw-dropping a statement it would be to say, submit to one another? Guys, I can only imagine that side eyes would be shifting. If this was like a family meeting, they all got down to the, the center of the courtyard, they were like, are you serious? That would have been crazy. Are we hearing this correctly? We're all meant to just not even like consider this hierarchy anymore. We're all called to mutually submit to one another. What is submission? You knew I was gonna ask you, right? What's the definition for submission? I believe that this is the instruction that Paul brings the church, that they yield their preferences and their power to serve one another. We are called as a church to yield our preferences and our power to serve one another. And how would this be out of reverence for Christ? What does that phrase mean? Out of reverence for a holy God, in awe and respect for a God that clothed himself with human flesh, that stood among us, born in a manger, dying on a cross, this Jesus that took up a towel to wash the feet of his disciples, who let Mary sit before him and said, yes, that will not be taken away from her. This Jesus that healed the leper. This is the king of the kingdom. This is the householder. This is the image that Paul gives us. Out of reverence for Christ, everything here is going to be different. So what does Paul say? How will this play out? Wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. How interesting 
that in each pair of relationships that Paul speaks to the one who had less power first. Not only that, that he spoke to them at all. Household codes at the time would have told the head of household how to maintain order and function in their house. So what a change that Paul says, wives, you have power and you have agency to submit yourself to your husband out of reverence for Christ as unto the Lord. Does that mean that the the householder was the Lord? No. It means that they knew that they were living under the authority of God. They could trust their God, their creator, their author, the perfecter of their faith. They could trust him to be their authority. He gives the wife responsibility and agency over her own actions. Moving on, verse 23 and 24, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I probably can't overstate how obvious it was to the original hearers that the husband was the head of the wife. At the time, there literally would not have been any alternative. There would have been no concept for another way of living between that wife and that husband. But Paul begins to turn the conversation and share the call of responsibility of the person who had the seat of power, of which he is the savior this is a common place for misunderstanding. We know that Paul can't, like, can't possibly think that, that the head of household would be responsible for the sin of other people based on Paul's other writings. But this word savior has an Old Testament connotation of provider and protector. Gordon Fee writes that, provider and protector. So from this point on, the larger portion of the instruction turns to the husband and says, You are called to protect and to provide. And I think of Jesus as the good shepherd. How did he choose to hold that place of power? He chose to take the place of vulnerability to protect and to provide. And so I come to my third and final point for tonight. The third key difference is that we are given the power to serve I don't think that this is just for a Roman elite male. I'm assuming you guys don't have that many similarities to that character. But I do believe that Paul's calling all of us that when and and wherever we are given power, that that is for the purpose of service. You'll notice from here on out that in the passage that the husband is actually given only one command, one imperative, really one word, It's really profound to me to think because there's lots of stuff going on there, lots of imagery that Paul's using, but one command. And that is love. He repeats it three times. Love your wife. The first time it appears is in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He defines this love as sacrifice. Love is not about what we get from someone else. It's certainly not about how we overpower them or how we use them, what function they play. It's defining love as Christ loved us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not self-seeking. And so I know that that's not a call for husbands only. And you can actually read this right in the text because at the very beginning of Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, it actually says the exact same thing, and that's not by mistake. 
Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So this is for everyone and it is also for the husband. It's also for the householder at the time. It's as if he's saying, hey, you, this is, this is how this applies right here, right now in your most fundamental relationship. And so love your wife comes up two more times. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And verse 33, each of you must love his own wife as he loves himself. So what's the point? How is this gospel truth? Though the structure of this Roman household may have stayed the same, there's just about nothing that could actually stay the same in the way those people were relating to one another. While there's, there, where there was absolute rule, there is now spirit-empowered service to use power to serve the other, to yield the preference and the self-interest for the person under their care. It reminds me a lot of Galatians 3, which I think is just about the most radical thing that Paul could have said um, in the Roman first century. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that race or gender or class doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that 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 doesn't have significance in how we carry out our lives. But what it does mean is that God is forming out of himself a new humanity, a new household where the structures that, that humans make aren't given the same weight. They aren't used to create hierarchy. They aren't used to, to abuse. They're used to bless. They're used to create shalom. They're pointing towards a future where God does make all things new, including how we relate to one another. This is the house of God, and this is the king that we serve. This is his character, and this is how the gospel plays out right here, right now, in our relationships. We look out for the needs of others because they are all made in the image of God, bearing his resemblance, having his value. So what's the application for us tonight? We're going to return to those three questions. First, be filled with the Spirit. How are you being filled with the Spirit? It's the exact same question that that Pete asked last week, but how are you being filled with the Spirit? When we think about transformation, sometimes we think we're going to be transformed by working harder, gritting our teeth, and getting better at the character of Jesus. But spirit transformation, spiritual transformation, has to have the Spirit in it, right? (laughs) So how are we making ourselves available to the Holy Spirit How are we asking him to be part of our lives? Because we won't be transformed from the outside in. We have to be transformed by God himself. Second, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, yielding one's preferences and power to serve one another. Where do we start? Human nature is not often to yield to one another. And I think it only gets compounded in a highly individualistic society. It's my greed first, my lust first, my time first, my goals first. It's all me first. But what the gospel asks of us 
is that we would yield to another. Guys, let's be people who practice this right here. This is dynamic. This is lifelong. This is spirit-led. We're not just going get to get good at this tomorrow, but would we start in our houses? Would we start with our roommates? Would we start with our classmates? Would we start with those people in, in core group with us? That we would yield to what they need above what we need. Guys, if you don't even know what they need, we need to find out what they need. We need to know them well enough to care for their needs. And lastly, given the power to serve, what will you do when you have power? Power can be a really uncomfortable word, and sometimes it's difficult to, to recognize when we have it. But I don't think it's something in the world that can be ignored. I think a lot of the conversations that we have actually surround that very word. So what position might the Lord place you in? As a parent, as a spouse, as a child, as an employee, or as a manager? If you're a boss, if you're a landlord or landlady, how are you going to use that power? You guys are graduating from the university with, with something powerful in your hand and a diploma. I've seen people who wouldn't have even imagined where that diploma would take them and they're in, in, that would have sat in your very seat and they were being asked these questions. What will they do now that they've been given positions of power? Small scale or very large scale, whatever the Lord entrusts you with, I want to challenge you to cultivate in yourself being a person who lays down their power to serve another. Because I truly believe that Paul wrote these words because he believed they would change the world. He believed it would change societies. He believed that it would change governments. But it starts right here with the building blocks of our relationships. And I can only imagine when I think of all the watch parties tonight, when I think about all of you in Chi Alpha, what the Lord could do in this very place. Starting right here. Filled with the Spirit, mutually submitted, empowered to serve. That is my prayer for you tonight. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are worthy of our praise and we desire to place you at the center, the center of our lives personally, the center of our lives in the church, in your body, the one that you sacrificed for, Jesus. Lord, we are all the poor and powerless. Lord, we have a high king that would sacrifice the most for us. So we can only do the appropriate thing, Lord, and follow your example in love. God, would you fill us with your spirits to be able to follow this? Would you make us new? Would you allow us to grow in this, to love one another well in Jesus' name? Filled with the spirit, empowered to serve. Jesus, this is our prayer. Amen. Nakai Alpha, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.